You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater help. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Well, welcome to episode four of season one. And we have a guest with us today. I'm excited to welcome Marshall Shelley to the show. Marshall is currently at Denver Seminary leading the Doctor of Ministry program, but he's probably best known for his three decades of work at Christianity Today as the senior editor, and specifically for his work at Leadership Journal. Marshall brings a unique perspective to leadership because not only is he himself a seasoned leader, but also I think what he brings is he has had three decades of a front row seat to engage a broad variety of Christian leaders and thinkers. Now, this is probably a great time for me to let you know that whenever I have a guest on the show, I try to spend the last 15 or 20 minutes of every interview asking the same questions for every guest. I want to know from our guests what makes them anxious, how they know when they're anxious, uh, how they first recognize anxiety in their body. I also want to know what makes our guests uh, feel human and alive, what kinds of activities and places help them feel human. Because we want to offer for our listeners just some basic tools on how you can begin to manage your anxiety. So when I sat down with Marshall, I started by asking him about his wonderful book he wrote called Well-Intentioned Dragons, Ministering to Problem People in the Church. I wanted to know what caused Marshall to write that book. I remember having lunch with uh, my two bosses, Harold Myra and... and um, Paul Robbins and uh, the editor of leadership at that point, I was his assistant, uh, Terry Muck. We were sitting around talking about what are the experiences that just about all pastors have? And almost immediately we came up with the topic of difficult people. Well, what kind of difficult people? What, what makes people difficult in ministry? Well, one of, the, one of the dirty little secrets is that sometimes the most difficult people are the most spiritual people, the people who think they know the Bible the best. And indeed they can. They can quote chapter and verse. They are, they are very certain of their, uh, their rectitude, their, their rightness. They just know what's right for themselves and for everybody else. And they think they're serving God. They think they are being faithful when they are actually being very destructive yeah. in, uh, in the community. And, um, Harold Myra said, you know, yeah, they're just well-intentioned dragons. And we all just paused and we thought, <laughs> that's it. Yeah. That's the title. It was yeah. just a, one of those magic moments where we realized he had just nailed it with a, you know, a two-word phrase that, yeah, they think they're they think they're doing good when in fact they're doing <laughs> they're doing lots of damage. Yeah. And we thought, okay, now there is a concept that uh, needs to be developed. Now the question is. Can we develop? Can we tell actual stories? Can we get people, you know, on the record, on the record. to talk about yeah. uh, the well-intentioned dragons that they've encountered? And uh, and so I started making appointments with uh, with pastors. I think I talked with uh, you know thirty different pastors for that for that book. But boy, there was no shortage of stories. Everybody could identify a situation where uh, they were up against an adversary, and the adversary was certain that they were. In the right, yes. but the effect on the church was uh, was very damaging. Yeah, yeah, and I think what one of the gifts of the book, because a lot of pastors treat that book like a therapy session. Mm -hmm. I think one of the gifts of the book is, if if I recall, you dedicate a chapter to naming species of dragon, mm -hmm. and there is something about when you're hurt or when you're anxious, being able to name it mm -hmm. 
What was your intention in actually breaking the dragons down into species? Oh, it was it was just partly to be fun, you know, because sure. that could be a very serious, uh, that could be a, you know, well-intentioned dragons could be a very serious uh, topic, and I just wanted to lighten the lighten the mood a little bit. Yeah, the wet blanket dragon, I think. But the, one yes, there's one wet, you know, oh, that'll never work. Or we, <laughs> yeah, it, you know, we tried that before, it didn't work, yeah. you know, and so the, just the, the negativity is, uh, you know, one form of dragonish behavior. Yeah. But there's also the bird dogs, you know, yes. people who, you know, have a gift for pointing out needs that you, Pastor, you really should meet. Or uh, I, I met this, I met this uh, homeless guy down outside the mall, and uh, I really think you ought to, you know, set up a series of uh, conversations with him because you know you you're the only one in the world who can uh, who can really meet his need. Now let's let's dig in on that one a bit. I, I think, like I, I'm obviously a pastor. Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest challenges is most pastors are very hard on themselves, mm -hmm. and no church can be everything. So there certainly are dragons who have criticisms of your church, and they are right. Mm -hmm. What would you say to a pastor when somebody is saying, oh, you should be doing this, or the church should be doing that? It may not be part of your vision, but they're not wrong. Like, doing a homeless ministry like that, that is a good thing to do. What's your word to a pastor that's feeling beaten up by that? It comes back to coming to peace with your calling. You know, what has God called you to do? God has not called you to solve every social ill, to um, resolve every conflict, to mediate every tension in the world. He has called you to be a proclaimer and embodier of the gospel in a particular time and a particular place. Being able to be comfortable with what God has equipped and called you to do and recognizing that God is going to have to call other people to accomplish things beyond your own abilities um, to do. I think for most of us who are in ministry, there's a bit of the people pleaser in us. And we want, yeah. we want people to appreciate us, to applaud us, to, to acknowledge our sacrifice, to acknowledge our, our efforts. And uh, that's a very understandable need, but boy, you can uh, overdose on that in a hurry. You, yeah. can, you can develop a craving for that that is very unhealthy. Yeah. And uh, being able to be comfortable with, uh, with your relationship with God and the way that you are serving God is, is key. So I, when I was uh, here at Denver Seminary and uh, in seminary, I was on the staff of uh, Bear Valley Church. Mm. And uh, the pastor at that time was Frank Tillipaw. Yes. And, and he just had a, I, I heard him say this many times, people come up, you know, I think Bear Valley really needs to start a ministry in X or Y or Z. Yes. And Frank didn't get flustered. He looked back and he said, you know, if, uh, if you recognize that need, that may be that God is calling you to do something about that. Yes. He hasn't talked to me about that, but he's clearly got your attention. Is that, is that something you'd be willing to, uh, willing to work on? Yeah. You know, at, Bear Valley said, "The only thing we can't give you is is money or <laughs> money or space. But uh, if there's any other way we can help you, um, go for it. Yeah. You know, I encourage you to you know go after that uh, yeah. need that is clearly on your heart." And so, you know, he very uh, very adeptly put the onus uh, back on the the person who was bringing that uh, bringing that observation and. Uh, you know, it, it did. It became part of the culture there is that if you're going to uh, point up a need, be ready to carry some of that burden. Yeah, carry that, carry that burden. Yeah, yeah. because that's, um, that's not something you're just going to be able to place on somebody else. Yeah, yeah. One of the things you mentioned in the book that I found particularly profound was the idea that in the face of a dragon or criticism, mm -hmm. 
the best thing a leader can do is make sure they're building a healthy organization, mm-hmm. which of course means that they themselves are healthy. Right. What's your thought on that? Everybody wants to be a part of a healthy church, and no church is totally healthy. Yeah. And uh, I'm not sure, you know, a pastor or a leadership team is capable of making the entire church healthy instantaneously. It uh, usually has to start with the leadership team itself, and uh, that's that's where a lot of uh, that's where a lot of churches go wrong because they don't take the time for the relationship of the staff and the elders, the key the key decision makers, mm-hmm. the uh, the I, I would call them d- the driving wheels in the uh, in the organization. Those relationships are not marked by trust and by uh, uh, unified vision and understanding of risk, uh, a willingness. You know, coming to uh, coming to some compatibility on the uh, difference between stability and security and risk and uh, and initiative and being able to um, you know work through situations together where um, consensus is sought and where uh, people are willing to confess that they may be they may be wrong that they may not see the future clearly and that. Um, we're going to have to lean on each other as we face into uh, situations that uh, confront us. Because as we look into the future, no decision is ever clear cut. Right. Uh, we always have to we always have to lead beyond what is what our vision can clearly see. Yeah. And uh, so that does require faith, and it uh, certainly requires faith in the Lord, but it also requires faith in our our peers, our our uh, the other members of the leadership team. You know that takes time to build. As you have successes, as you have failures, as you um, develop the ability to admit that we failed, and okay. that we're going to the failure isn't fatal, but it's it's an opportunity for us to you know learn from the learn from mistakes and benefit from that as we uh, as we move forward so. okay let's talk about that so mm-hmm. you mentioned most leaders have a people pleasing mm-hmm. idol or mm-hmm. tendency and you've also mentioned that leading means you i like the way I, i'm not going to say it right mm-hmm. but you basically said you have to lead beyond what you can see right that means you're going to make mistakes mm-hmm. let's let's not be talking about the giant moral mm-hmm. mistakes where you end mm-hmm. up out of work could you tell us a story of a mistake you've made what was it and how did you recover from it to lead again? Because I think part of the theory is that leadership is always vulnerable. You're always putting yourself out there. And if you're going to lead beyond what you can see, you're going to get it wrong once in a while. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a story that you could share? Yes, I can. And this is, uh, this is painful, but um, there, was a, there was a major cultural change, a, a sea change in American culture about, t- uh, it wasn't even 10 years ago. It was probably about eight uh, just before the beginning of the Me Too movement. And uh, I published an article that if I had the benefit of hindsight now, I never would have published. Mm-hmm. But um, I got an email from a pastor's wife down in Mississippi who said uh, she, she was involved in prison ministry. And she, uh, she said, I think I've got a story that you'd like to publish in your, in your journal. She'd written for us before. I you know, trusted her judgment. And uh, she said, it's a story of a a youth pastor who got too close to one of the uh, girls in his youth group wound up having wound up having sex. He was um, arrested as a as a felon, serving prison time now. And she said, "I think the story of how he got involved with this in this relationship that wound up putting him behind bars, costing him his marriage, costing him his family, costing him his job, costing him his freedom, 
Um, I think that would be a you know a fascinating, fascinating story. I said, yeah. boy, it got my attention. Yeah, absolutely. What I didn't you know what I didn't see at the time is that he told the story the way that story would have been told for the previous thirty years, uh. where he 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 addressed it as you know I formed a relationship with this with this seventeen year old. One thing led to another, and we wound up um, we wound up having sex. And so I, you know, almost immediately I felt guilty. I felt I had sinned. I felt, you know, identified with with David and you know Bathsheba, and right. and uh, so he went through the whole thing and and was, you know, confessing his sin of adultery. And uh, you know, I published that, yeah. thinking that oh, this will be helpful to see how. Uh, how people in ministry can delude themselves, how they can how they can live with false false assumptions, and how even somebody as well intentioned as this youth pastor is susceptible to um, to sexual sin, and you know winds up, winds up costing him everything, and he's now a felon, and he's yeah. in prison. I thought it would be a good cautionary tale. Well, as soon as we published that, and you know, this was not just published in a print journal, it was published on our website, which meant it was sure. out there for everybody to read. Yeah. Immediately, you know, trending on Twitter with the hashtag, how old were you? And how old were you when you were hit on by someone in the church that you were supposed to trust? And, and uh, you know, we were immediately attacked looking back on it justifiably yeah. for presenting this as a consensual relationship when it was not a consensual yeah. relationship there was just such a disparity of power well that was a horrible mistake and i you know i wound up publicly having to confess that we took the took the article down we we uh, it's it's no longer on the website you know publicly acknowledging our our error in in publishing that we wound up Contributing everything that we'd earned from advertising on that uh, on that article, we contributed that to two uh, uh, organizations that help survivors of uh, you know sexual assault. And it was just a very uh, it, it was a um, a learning it, it was a failure that uh, is still very painful. And yet I have learned a, a lot from that, and yeah. uh, just recognizing that what you think is being addressed to one audience. In the days of social media, is now yes. broadcast to everyone, and uh, that was a lesson I did not recognize at that time that yeah. I, I now uh, I now recognize. Yeah, thank you for so, sharing that example. What one of the dynamics it describes is a blind spot mm-hmm. when a leader doesn't see they have a blind spot, and as soon as the blind spot's revealed, you just shared that too. You you know it. Yeah, um, and you did a beautiful job of laying out what you as a leader and your organization did to do your best to make it right. What about what's happening inside of you? Like in my case, I always expect 100% out of myself. And when I don't do it perfectly, I feel stupid. And when I feel stupid, I feel exposed. Mm-hmm. And then I want to hide. Mm-hmm. Are you able to just, okay, you made that move and immediately the blind spots reveal what's going on inside your head? Oh, how could I have been so stupid? Okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. How could I not have seen that ahead of time? I, there were there were indicators out there, but I didn't I didn't connect the dots. So I didn't like off your radar. It, yes, it was. Yeah. I was I was operating on outdated assumptions. Yeah. Uh, one of the benefits of getting older is that you've lived through eras where societal values have changed. Yeah. Um, 
You know, I lived through the day when smoking was cool. Now smoking is not cool. Um, I've, I've lived through, um, you know, the age when, uh, you know, in conservative Christian circles, when, uh, you know, having a beer, going to a movie, playing, playing cards, playing poker were just not a thing. Now, you know, attitudes, you know, attitudes are changing yeah. in, in a lot of areas. And, uh, and, and I try to be, uh, I try to respond to these things with grace, recognizing that, you know, you can't really blame historical characters for living by the assumptions and the cultural values of their day. I mean, anybody that reads church history recognizes that, you know, the church has gone through lots of cultural shifts. And, yes. uh, you know, Max Dupree said, the first task of a leader is to define reality. Define reality right. And what is reality now? Right. What are the... What are the impeachable offenses? What are the uh, criminal offenses? You know, how do people interpret their world today, right here, right now, in this context? And uh, we need to be able to define those realities and be able to work within them. So one of the gifts we try to offer our listeners is to ask respected leaders to come and and just share some vulnerable things about themselves because I think I think most leaders tend to feel alone and you mentioned the mm -hmm. imposter syndrome at the top I think most leaders feel like they're the only one. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the questions we ask all our guests is the physiology of anxiety. Mm. And we put it we we suggest that anxiety either starts in the mind, the heart or the gut. So mm. it's either a spinning mind a racing heart or a tightening gut. Mm. Does one of those particularly resonate more with you? Well, as I was telling that story, I noticed my hands were shaking. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you're kind of reliving it. There, yes, as you relive it, um, yes, I would. I would have to say, in my case, the, the mind, the mind spinning certainly resonates. The thoughts begin to spin, but it's a very small orbit. You can't get. I, I find that it feels like my mind is shutting down. It's getting closed it's in. Including and. And I want to break outside of this prison that's holding me in, but I can only, I can only see as far as the problem. I can't see beyond the problem, and yeah. uh, and that's what fear does: is it it limits your options because your imagination is stunted. Yeah, uh, and, and you can't think harder your way out of it. You the can't you, you can't see outside the box because you feel imprisoned in the box. Yeah, and uh, people have often said that that conflict or guilt. Um, the, the first casualty is your vision because you mm. can't you can't see beyond where you are right now. A leader simply got to see beyond the current situation, and uh, that's what that's what fear or that's what conflict often does is it gets us uh, gets us imprisoned in a smaller world than uh, we need to be inhabiting. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's Malcolm Gladwell says that. To the earthworm and horseradish, the whole world is horseradish. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of that. So when you're Very in good. that situation, when you're feeling that impending doom, do you have any intervention techniques that you've found helpful? As most leaders are, I'm an introvert. Okay. You know, I process things internally. In head, you know, yeah. sometimes it does help to go on the other side of that and to, to pretend to be an extrovert and and process this with with people. Okay, because. Um, if you're an introvert and you get into this closed-in, tightly one, tightly orbiting um, mental cycle, that that you've got to you got to break that, and sometimes that that means other people finding uh, 
finding someone you can trust or just you know going to a friend saying can, can I just unload on you for a bit I just need to I just need to process what's yeah. what's going on normally I process this between my two ears but um, now I need to process this externally okay and that's a uh, that's helpful that's helpful that's good advice okay so Marshall you have led in inside the church mm-hmm. you've led in nonprofit business print mm-hmm. um, is there commonality with leaders in these different organizations, or do they all, in fact, have unique issues? I'd like to suggest that there are two. There's sort of a continental divide of, of leaders, at least in my in my personal experience. There are what I call executive leaders. Uh, they're in they're in roles where they they take initiative, where they can act unilaterally. And uh, so, if you're a uh, if you're a coach, you're an executive you're an executive leader. If you're the uh, you know, president of an organization. Uh, if you're a, if you're the editor of a journal, you know there's there's certain initi- there are certain uh, things that you can do unilaterally. So that's what I call executive leadership. But then there's legislative leadership. Hmm. If you're if you're the member of a board, if you're part of the if you're on the board of elders, or if you are um, on the board of trustees of a of a school, if you are um, in a legislative role. You cannot act unilaterally. You have to develop consensus. Mm. You know your your leadership is only as effective as your persuasive abilities to get other people to agree agree with you. And uh, I do think that um, today uh, in churches, it's often challenging for a um, for a pastor because there are certain expectations that the pastor is going to be an executive leader. At the same time, if it is elder-led, that's legislative leadership, yeah. and there's often confusion about what is within the realm of executive leadership for the pastor and what is within the realm of legislative leadership for the pastor. Where are we? Where do we need consensus, and where do we uh, expect you to um, initiate on your own? Yeah. And uh, so I think those, you know, there, there's usually some element of legislative leadership in any role. There's usually some element of ex- executive leadership in any role, and it's it's where those two um, those two areas overlap that there's often uh, confusion and, okay. and difficulty. Okay, so we focus uh, on this podcast on two forms of anxiety. One is the internal of the mm-hmm. leader. Mm-hmm. Really appreciate what mm-hmm. you've shared about that because I, I do think. Leadership health comes down to being able to manage your anxiety mm-hmm. and to name it. And, but the other half is um, noticing anxiety in groups. Mm-hmm. And one of our theories is that anxiety is contagious like a cold. Everyone can catch it. Uh, do you have a, a story of a, either a time where you were anxious and you brought it into a group and you saw it spread, or you were leading something but one of the group members was anxious and you saw it be contagious? Does that generate anything for you? I was the uh, chairman of the elders of a of a church. Oh, this would would have been back in the uh, late '80s, late '80s, early '90s, and our church was changing its constitution, and um, we wanted to um, allow more opportunities for women to take leadership positions within the church, and uh, we knew that was going to be a uh, a controversial topic as we brought this, um, we were going to be changing the church constitution. We knew there were there was going to be opposition. This was not going to be a unanimous thing, but we felt it was something that uh, was going to be that the church would overall support, and that we needed 
to do uh, for the uh, for the, the future of the organization. Um, I learned the hard way that what I yet I knew there was going to be ang- you know at that congregational meeting there was going to be anxiety yes. that there was uncertainty that there was there was uh, conflict that people weren't sure who all was going to line up on which side uh-huh. of this thing and and it was very much an us them an us them thing and I started off thinking oh we need a little humor here okay <laughs> no in a tense situation do not try to be funny. Uh, you know, I came in with a couple of jokes, and they just went flat because nobody was there to be entertained. They were there to um, to see whether or not you could handle conflict yeah. competently. Yeah. I learned, you know, very quickly that you know, all right, cut the cut the uh, you know the comedy shtick here, Marshall. It's not it's not working. Um, try to let people know that we are, you know. Name the reality. Okay. What's Max, the Max you know, Dupree again? Max Dupree. You know, define the reality. You know, okay. I know that everybody in this room is uncertain about you know what we're what we're facing. We're not uh, we're not sure. You know, who all is going to agree with us? Who's going to disagree with us? Try to identify the emotions in the room, and um, acknowledge that we are not going to mistreat anybody here. We are going to respect one another. We're going to seek to make a decision that is going to be pleasing to God and pleasing to the Holy Spirit and to us. Um, we're going to name the fact that there are probably going to be people who will not uh, agree with the final decision that the majority makes. But we are not going to dismiss them. We're not going to tell them that you have to leave. We want you to you know, stay with us. This is not a uh, uh, make, make or break in terms of our relationships as a congregation. And I realized, you know, there that being able to uh, ease the anxiety to, or to address the anxiety in the room is not to cover it over with humor, but to address it directly yeah. and say, "Okay, Marshall, I'm sorry. I did. I should not have tried to be funny. That was that was a mistake. What I need to be is serious about what it is that we're facing. Define the reality. Uh, set up. You know, identify the ground rules." What are we not going to allow to happen? What do we hope is going to happen okay. here? And um, we hope to make a decision that um, not everyone is for, but that everyone can accept. And that's uh, and and that uh, that to me was a helpful distinction of we're not going to get rid of the anxiety, but we're going to try to manage the anxiety fairly. It also sounds to me like one of the things you did is that you provided for people, whether you call it empathy, but. Um, we understand where you're coming from. That was the exactly. Me- you were we we want to we want to acknowledge that there are points of view here that are different from mine, and yeah. that's and it's going to be. And okay. we want you here. That's it's going to be okay. We are going to survive as an organization, and we will actually benefit from this, this experience, even if it's unpleasant right now. Yeah. So two things I'm hearing that you did, whether it was intuitive or mm-hmm. overtly intentional, is I, I think one strong source of anxiety is when you feel misunderstood or misheard, mm-hmm. and you definitely provided for that room, I understand and I hear you. Uh, and the other one is that it sounds like you right-sized the problem. Like mm-hmm. for some people it was much bigger than it really was, and you're mm-hmm. saying we, this, we can get through this together. Right, that's, that's well put, yes. Uh, part of defining reality is right-sizing the problem. Yeah. Uh, we, we do have an issue here, but it's not going to be an issue that is going to cause us to lose our appreciation for one another. We're yeah. still the body. We're still the body of Christ here. We are still going to be able to serve even if uh, we aren't um, 
totally aligned on this particular issue. Yeah, when you came in with humor, you were wrong-sizing. Like right, you were, you I were was diminishing it, it trivializing it, yes. But by speaking to people's concerns, you, you, you did de-escalate mm -hmm. the anxiety. Right. Yeah. Were you taught that, or you, there's just something that... That you, was... I was not taught that. I learned that on the fly. <laughs> I, I could just see it. Just reading the room, I realized, okay, people don't need to be distracted here. They need to be focused. I'd love to hear another story, Marshall, if you wouldn't mind sharing, um, because I think that's another leadership situation. You come in with a plan. I'm going to tell jerks. But the ability for a leader, without going into shame, you know, when that bombed, mm -hmm. to then uh, be nimble, change course, and do what's needed. Have you got another situation where you've done that? And it doesn't yeah. have to be the joke to the yeah. serious. Yeah. Um, I'm still living one right now. I'm trying to decide what how to... Well, when I came to when I came to Denver Seminary, um, one of the first questions the uh, in my faculty interview was, Marshall, if you get the job as the director of the Doctor of Ministry program at Denver Seminary, how are you going to get more women and minorities into the program? Okay. And my response is, we've got to de-yoke the Doctor of Ministry program from the MDiv. You know, right now you have to have a Master of Divinity degree before you can even enter the Doctor of Ministry program. We're not going to get more women and minorities if we insist that everybody have an MDiv. Of course, yeah. Because the, the percentages of women and minorities who have a Master of Divinity degree are much less than the population at large or those who have Master uh, MA degrees, Master of Arts degrees. Marshall, we can edit this mm -hmm. podcast. I am curious. Do you happen to know the percentages? I'd be fascinated to know. I don't have them off the top okay, of my head. Yeah, I can, I can look. They're available in, they're available in the ats.edu um, website. I can look them up. Okay. <laughs> I, I think it's an astute observation that if you've got a tiny pipe, you're not going to get many. Right. You can't grow a program. You can't diversify a program if without widening the pipe. Yeah. So, uh, what I, uh, my first year here, I was listening and collecting evidence. Uh, in my second year here, I uh, got our doc, you know, I, along with our doctor of ministry committee, um, applied for an exception to that admissions policy in the doctor of ministry program. Um, went to our crediting agency, the Association of Theological Schools and said, we would like an exception to that policy. I would like to be able to admit anybody who has a master's degree from any accredited school, Master of Arts, uh, any, any, any master's degree, and can pass an oral examination that covers the key areas that you need to know in a doctoral program, biblical studies, theology, and the arts of ministry. Um, this is basically what we make all of our Master of Divinity students here at Denver Seminary go through anyway. You have yeah. to be able to defend your your biblical knowledge, your theology, and your and the arts of ministry. Yeah. But my just in my first year here, I was meeting prospective students who had a Master of Arts in electrical engineering. Yeah. But they had been pastoring for nine years. They were readers. They had read, uh, they, they'd been teaching the Bible. They'd been reading theology. They'd been preaching and doing pastoral care and uh, leading churches. They knew biblical studies. They knew theology. They knew the arts of the arts of ministry. They just didn't have the Master of Divinity degree. So sure. I so I applied for a functional equivalency of the MDiv, not the classroom hours equivalency of the Master of Divinity. And lo and behold, 
um, the Association of Theological Schools said, yes, and by the year 20, uh, 2020, we would like a report on how that's gone for you. Wow. You, it, can, you, you can you keep track of the progress, how yeah. the students who have an MDiv do compared with those who have an MA but have been able to pass the oral examination? I said, happy to do it. So we're in the middle of that. We're in the middle of that now. But to me, that was a leadership issue of you've got, again, defining the reality. Yeah. What is the, um, well, to use the metaphor of a log jam, you know, yeah. if logs are coming down yep. a stream and they get all piled up, which, which one do you need to, you know, which one are you going to attach the dynamite to, to blow up the logs so that the logs no longer are jammed up, but they can flow downstream. That's good. And, um, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know if I picked the right log. I think I did. Yeah. I think that's the, uh, you know, that's the thing that's going to help the doctor of ministry uh, not only grow in terms of its enrollment, but also open it up to uh, women and minorities in a way that uh, was not open uh, before. And I'd have to say in just the first three months of our practice, it's working. You know, we've, we've gotten uh, more, more people from more diverse backgrounds than before who are applying. Yeah, it's a fascinating, uh, I think it's a great leadership example because the temptation would be to come in and just try to market harder, but you mm -hmm. actually were trying to diagnose the, the blockage. Right. Yeah, reframing is what we mm -hmm. call it mm -hmm. in our material. You're reframing the problem. Right. The problem isn't attracting more people, the problem is changing the pipeline or, right. or widening, I guess. In, in right. right. That's amazing. And that this highly established um, oversight group turns out were more nimble than maybe anyone thought they would be. Well, I think there's there's pressure. They're, they're recognizing pressures from all 271 schools in the Association uh -huh. of Theological Schools that there are issues, but this is the, this is the first time I think, well, no, that, that, I take that back. That's not the first. I learned that there was a, there was a Catholic theological school uh, out on the West Coast that was trying something similar to this. I said, oh, they're on to the nubbin of an idea here. Yeah. I'm going to... Yep. I'm going to throw it a little more wide open, yep. but have a have a means here of, you know, not just anybody can walk into a doctoral yes. class and be able to benefit from and contribute to the class discussion. We mm. want we want people to be able to benefit from doctoral studies, and you can't do that without some preparation, without some fluency in biblical studies and theology and the arts of ministry. So we said, okay, let's, you know, we we we've got to find a more accessible way to get people who have those capabilities into the program without spending 72 credit hours of yeah. Master of Divinity work. Yeah, yeah, and tens of thousands of dollars. Right. Oh, I love that. I have three more questions. Sure. Um, I, I do think you have a unique point of view, because of, particularly because of your role at Leadership Journal. Mm -hmm. it, it feels to me like we're going through a fresh era of high-profile pastors having to step down. And uh, I'd love to get your take on the common denominator or for, for particularly pastors who are listening, this podcast is for a variety of people, but for the pastors who are listening, uh, what do they need to be careful of that you're seeing as a problem today? Yeah, you're asking me to pontificate. And <laughs> I guess so, yeah. yeah I, I'm not really it, interested in dirt or... Yeah, but, no, I'm not, yeah. I think, the, you know... We, we talked. We've talked about it a little bit before, but I do think the root issue is loneliness. I do think mm. the uh, when you begin to see yourself as the exceptional individual, the one person mm. to whom 
the rules for most people don't apply. That you're the you're the one, the only, the um, like an entitlement. Yeah. Well, it's 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 not it's it's not. I guess it could be rationalized as an entitlement, but it's a. Um, it can just lead to loneliness, and I was just reading today that loneliness isn't a isn't a solitary condition. It's made up of loneliness is anger, it's shame, it's mm-hmm. grief, it's it's a disconnection. It's you know there's a lot of things that go into the loneliness, and it takes it takes leadership to be able to escape loneliness when you are an executive leader. Yeah, um, uh, because you can't. The role of leader means, by of necessity, certain things have to remain confidential. You can't tell everything to everybody. There are personal issues that you have to deal with. There are, there are plans that can be announced at the appropriate time, but that can't be talked about publicly now. There are lots of reasons for discretion in leadership, but if that leads to isolation and loneliness, that's a dangerous condition. and. Usually, you know, one of the one of the ways that that pressure is released is through um, acting out sexually. It's through gambling or or alcohol or other forms of addictive behavior uh, that are used as uh, release valves for the the pressure and the loneliness that's felt. So rather than um, you know self medicating with with uh, sex or pornography or gambling or uh, any other addictive behavior, how much better to um, blow up the log of loneliness mm-hmm. and address that issue by trying to um, uh, develop relationships, plural, mm-hmm. um, with people that you can trust. You know, you may not be able to tell uh, everybody everything, but yeah. you ought to be able to tell somebody everything. Yeah, and. Um, whether that's a counselor, whether that's a, uh, uh, a a peer in another institute, it's usually not somebody in the congregation. It's somebody, usually somebody outside the congregation. Yeah, but someone somebody you don't have to impress, or right. someone you're not. Right, different. somebody who can challenge you, who mm-hmm. can say, "That that's a that's a pile of crap." You know, yeah. you're you're you know you are you are misdiagnosing your own problem. You know, being able to speak truth into this the situation. I think that's. Um, that is often a very difficult uh, relationship to to find, but uh, oh, how much better than uh, than the disaster that can come down the road from uh, leaving that untreated. Yeah, that's a that's a good word. You, if I were to summarize what you're saying, I'd like to hear if you think this mm-hmm. is accurate. There's an inherent loneliness to leadership. You add pressure. You then need a pressure valve, which often begins in some illicit mm-hmm. way, and then you have to hide that. Right, and then it has power over you, and then then it then yeah, it just then it's just a spiraling, uh, and then right. it's just a matter of time. Right, yeah, whether it's that year or ten years later, but yeah, okay. Two final thoughts: uh, What kinds of people or situations make you anxious? And you, we don't need an exhaustive list. Yeah, no, 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 no. For me, it's well. I think you are, well. For me, I'm a you know I'm a I'm a peacemaker. I'm a okay. you know I'm a people pleaser. So conflict, just relational um, tension, relational tension. Uh, yeah. That that's, and if you know, and that's fairly common. As I was asking pastors, what's what's caused you the most lost sleep yeah. in the last uh, in the last six months? The most frequent answer was conflict. You know, okay. if if some if I know someone is upset with me, 
that's a uh, that causes me to lose sleep. And then you end, end up in your head. You're playing it over and over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How can I? Am I am I at fault here? Do I need to? do something to you know reconcile is this is this on me or is this on them yeah. um, and then what are a couple of things that you do for fun oh well moving from chicago to colorado has opened up whole new opportunities yes. for fun i uh, you know tomorrow i'm going to be going to see the aspen you know ah. I, I enjoy um, i enjoy colorado's uh, natural beauty i'm a i'm a grandfather and uh, you know both i have two daughters that have uh, grandkids i'm I'm, you know, I, last week, uh, grandchild number six was born, and oh, in wow. in three weeks, grandchild number seven is going to oh, be born. Wow. And they live uh, they live in other parts of the country. So, but uh, my wife and I have both said, you know, um, money is not made to be hoarded; it's made to be spent on experiences. And so we we see each of our sets of uh, grandkids at least three times a year. So that's uh, that's a delight. I also have to say, um, reading. Okay. Pandora. Uh, I enjoy. I enjoy walking outside with, uh, with. Uh, in my case, uh, classic oldies. Oh, know? what's classic oldies for you? <laughs> oh, classic oldies. Um, the Association. Um, um, Cre- Creedence Clearwater Revival. Oh, sure. Excellent. Um, John Fogerty. Oh, John Fogerty is one of the best. He's yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and I'm a. I'm a nut for history. I. You know, my dad was a history professor, and uh, so I enjoy visiting historical sites. Ooh. Marshall, thank you so much. Thanks for sharing your heart and your wisdom. And uh, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Steve, for your interest in leadership because it is a a key gift that the the Lord has given to the church. And I hope we can live up to the uh, opportunity that he's given. As with all our episodes, we'll have show notes up on the website. You can go to managingleadershipanxiety.com or you can also go to stevecusswords.com. It'll lead you to the same place. Click on show notes and blog. And we'll have a link there to Marshall's book, Well-Intentioned Dragons, and also some other notes from today's episode. You can follow us on Facebook. We have a Managing Leadership Anxiety group there. For more resources, you can visit managingleadershipanxiety.com and download a free chapter of my upcoming book. This episode is a production of Steve Cuss. 